Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June 14th, 2017, and this is episode 2023 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you guys today. I'm kind of excited about this one. Um, we're going to talk about bees today. Uh, but not honeybees. We're going to talk about whole bees. What are whole bees? They're bees that live in a hole. And uh, in this case, we're going to be talking, I think, mostly about mason bees and summer leafcutter bees, but probably other bees as well. There's actually thousands of, of and tens of thousands of different species of bees in the world. And, you know, I, I'm a beekeeper myself. I have uh, four honeybee hives, and it takes some work to do it right. And I honestly probably don't do as much work as I should. And I'm fortunate to have a good mentor named Jason that I can lean on for a lot of it. Um, but there's a lot to honeybee hives. And not the least of which is, well, they... They get pissed off at you and sting you sometimes. Though my bees are pretty dadgone gentle. But, you know, a year ago, uh, it wasn't the case. I had some crossbreeding happen, and I got my hives got really hot. I mean, really hot, like mean-ass bees. And uh, they require some specialized equipment, suits and stuff. I'm not to put it down, but, I mean, it's it's not something for everyone. And I know there's a lot of you guys out there that are like me, that I'd like to do some other stuff, but I just don't have time for one more thing that takes a couple hours, even a month. What if you could increase the biodiversity on your property, uh, have better pollination of your, your, your crops or just your native plants, have a great you know little contribution that you can make to your ecosystem, and it would take you 45 minutes to an hour, not per week, not per month, but per year. What if that's all that it took? Well, that is all that it takes with whole bees. And we have a great guest today, Charlie Moore from crownbees.com. It's going to talk to us all about that in just a minute. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family. This is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey, or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. There's only one official Berkey Guy, and you can only find him at his website at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, the number's 21, and a dot com. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. Okay, with that knocked out, let's take a look at the year in history. This year we are up to the year six in history for a little historical context about how we got to where we are today. I have one segment today from David Verne, and it's called The Pannonian Revolt Begins. Following Tiberius's withdrawal of the majority of Roman troops in Panoria and Dalmatia, uh, Dalmatia, For a campaign in Germany, the discontent from Roman rule has flared into a revolt. The rebel generals, Pennus and two unrelated men, both named Bato, 
have a reported 200,000 infantry and 9,000 cavalry between them. Although ancient historians tend to exaggerate numbers, the rebel army quickly overwhelms the auxiliaries and the few legionnaires in the province, but several fortified towns remain under Roman control. By the end of the summer, the rebels have seized almost the entire province, sent raiding parties into Macedonia and Greece, and have begun to plan an invasion of Italy. Italy is in a panic due to so much territory so close to Italy held by an enemy. All veterans in Italy are called back into service. Emergency levies are held, and wealthy families have to provide freedmen as soldiers. Tiberius is ordered to return to Germany and take command of the army and crush the revolt. My take by David Verm. Rome had not ordered wealthy families to supply freedmen since the Baltic can of 216 B.C., Around 75,000 Romans were killed during the battle, and Hannibal had a clear path to Rome. The empire wasn't quite that desperate during this revolt, but the legions were completely out of place to deal with it. Rome always tried to put down revolts as soon as possible during this period. They were still consolidating their rule over many recently conquered areas and worried that a successful revolt would encourage others. Indeed. So let's take this into modern day and, and discuss how this plays out in a totally different way today. What you'll notice is governments today, instead of sending soldiers in to smash people's brains onto the ground, you know that type of thing, it doesn't happen quite as often. But when someone's revolting, uh, be it with tax protesting, uh, or be it someone like Ross Ulbright building Silk Road, which we have conclusive proof, by the way, reduced violence, that less people died because of Silk Road. Just because the drug trade was made where two parties could trust each other to sell drugs and no one had to meet on a dark alley street, actually less people died, right? But they put him in jail for like three consecutive life sentences, which is ridiculous for a nonviolent crime. Um, there's a gal, I can't think of it, Sherry Jackson, I think is her name, a former IRS agent that, that was speaking around the country. And what she was doing was telling people that basically the income tax is a scam, which it is how it's unconstitutional and things like that. And uh, she didn't pay her own taxes. She was charged with four misdemeanors. Uh, and with a misdemeanor, you should never leave county jail. She went to federal prison for five years. And while she wasn't tried for going around doing these workshops, what the judge says to her at sentencing is, you can't go around telling people that they don't have to pay their taxes. Right? So... What the government has a pattern of doing way back year six here and way before that and all the way up to modern day in one way or another is anybody that revolts against government and appears to be doing so successfully must be smashed so that others will fear revolting. And that's why I think the future of, of insurrection against the power of the state is in decentralized systems which I've talked about a lot, which is it's cryptocurrency, but it's really not cryptocurrency. It's blockchain distributed ledger technologies. You know, one of the ways they always got the bad guys in the past was their books. Like if you're running an illegal gambling thing, you can't just keep all the numbers in your head. You have to have books, right? So you keep the books. And if they, if they get a warrant and they raid the, the, the bookie's place, they get his books. And now they have proof of what he's been doing. When they, a lot, you know, bootlegging liquor during prohibition, people kept books. They kept accounting on it. Not to give to their IRS agent, but so that they knew whether they were making money or losing money and who owed them. 
And it's always been if you can get the, get the, the bookie's books, you can get the bookie. Well, what if the bookie doesn't exist anymore? The bookie, and realize the bookie is an, an analog here. It could mean many different things, not just gambling, though it could be done for that. But the bookie is a distributed ledger system that exists on millions of computers across the planet, and the transactions are trust-verified through the network, and no one needs to keep the books anymore because the books are the ledger, and therefore there's no bookie anymore. There's only a way to allow interaction and peaceful coexistence among people. That's that's hard to go and put down, and it's a successful insurrection rather than a revolution. Remember, I've been saying this for years now, but a revolution takes power from one group of leadership and hands it to another, still leading the people that fought the revolution under the control of someone else. Just maybe someone they like better, often someone they end up liking worse. But an insurrection seizes power from the hands of leadership into the hands of the insurrectionists themselves. My take by Jack Spirico. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring the show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're a military law enforcement Peace Corps or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount. Just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. All right, with that wrapped up, we're about ready to bring our special guest on, but I had a little bit of an announcement for you guys today. I've gotten a lot of questions from a lot of you guys about mining cryptocurrency. And over the past couple of months, I've played with a bunch of different things. I've tried to do it with pool mining using CPUs, and I've, you know, I've, I've tried to follow instructionals, and I consider myself fairly technical, and, and all of it has been nothing but a giant malignant pain in the ass um and you know i've looked at mining currencies like nexus or uh some of the other stuff that's out there looked at a thing called Feathercoin, uh monero etc and uh there's a lot of tutorials and i'm sure there's a lot of people that have the time to 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 screw around with it and i came across something about a month ago called minergate and i ran it for about a week and Now, I made a few bucks in a week, and I thought, yeah, well, gee, that's really not worth it. But then, you know, I spent, it was probably over a month and a half ago that I did that. And then I spent the next few weeks, like each day, playing around, trying to figure out how to mine one cryptocurrency, just one that would be worth doing. And uh, today I kind of said, I'm, I'm done with this. If, it, if I want to mess with cryptocurrency, I'll just buy what I want to speculate on, and if it goes up, then I'll you know, transfer it to something that's more of a stable store of value like Ethereum or, or Bitcoin. And I was about to give up, and I remembered Minergate. So I opened up Minergate, and I looked at it, and I realized you know, that uh, with Monero, I had about four bucks worth of Monero in there from running it for about a week. Now, I'm running a pretty powerful computer that sits here and does nothing unless it's running Minergate or when I do a few other functions. Uh, so I do want to be clear about that. But I was like, wait a minute, if if I had let that run for six weeks, what would I have? Ten, twelve bucks worth of this, you know, cryptocurrency. 
And what would I have really given for it? Well, the power to run the computer that kind of sits there idly turning away anyway. So I, I decided to turn it back on, and it has an application called Smart Mining. Again, this thing is called Minergate. And I thought, well, if I'm going to tell people about this, do they offer any kind of partnership program? So I looked it up, and they have an affiliate program, uh, a Minergate affiliate program. So today I put up a little banner on the site. It says Minergate, first payment, 24-hour start mining. Um, if you want to try it, you can go ahead and try it. If you do, um, I, I have used this program. It does deposit money into its own wallet. If you want to transfer it out, as long as there's enough there to make it worth transferring, you can transfer it out. I know the minor part works. I don't know if you get a good ROI. I haven't really done the math on the electronics or anything of it. But if you want to get your toe in the water, that's fine. What I don't know is, like, do they actually track your affiliates? So if you if you click my banner and you download the program and you start running it, shoot me an email with TSPC Crypto in the subject line and let me know. So I can find out if these guys are you know on the level or not. I found some people saying some nasty things about them in a forum. But it wasn't like their thing doesn't work or they're screwing people. It's like they're related to some other thing that was a scam and they're somehow connected to it. It was like very ad hominem. And it didn't really address the situation. Like, does it work? Does it do? They do what they say they would do. So I'm kind of checking them out. So before I do a post and I really get behind this, if I had a few people that tried it and I could see if it at least attracts affiliates that, you know, you're there, you're running it. And basically what it does is they're a pool. And what that means is instead of mining it by yourself, it's, it's thousands and thousands of computers around the world contributing their computing power to a pool. And then you get a piece of what you contributed and they take some of it. The way they pay their affiliates is, um, if I refer you, supposedly, they give me a piece of their piece, which is a smaller piece of a smaller piece, which is fine if it actually works. But, I mean, to me, if they're actually taking care of their affiliates, then that would mean they're probably taking care of everybody. And it's a good way to evaluate them. And if you know, a few of you guys are trying this and you know deciding whether it works or not, it gives me a better understanding. It is the only thing i found like this. It's basically a piece of software. You can install it on your Mac or your PC. And you select what currency you want to mine, and you start mining it. Now, you will find that your computer will have a certain number of CPU cores. Okay, um, This will be things like number 4 or 8 or 6. And you can dedicate all cores to mining you know, one cryptocurrency. I would recommend that you maybe don't. Um, I have eight cores on the Mac that I have this installed on. I'm running six of them. I think running your computer flat out nonstop is not good for your computer. And I would once in a while give it a break. You know, maybe you run it overnight when you're not using it or something like that. Um, you can run it on multiple computers. It's, uh, it's pretty simple to do that. And um, it, it's, it's something you can try. And I'm not, I'm not saying, I think this is the greatest thing in the world. I think this is the only thing I found. You can download a piece of software, it's just like a normal piece of software, and click a button and it starts mining for you. And it, it works. It does work. Um, they, they have a feature called Smart Mining, and if you just click Smart Mining, it'll start mining the currency that has the best return at that moment. Uh, it will probably dedicate all your core processors, and I would probably back that down. You don't have to understand anything technical to do that. Uh, let me pull it up right now so I'm looking at it when I explain it, so I explain it right. Um, you'll just see when you're mining, you'll see like a little hash rate thing. It'll show you numbers. So right now I'm mining XMR, um, and I have my hash rate growing. Uh, it says GPU mining not available because I don't have the GPU unit here. 
and it says CPU cores, and there's a little pull-down tab. And I have eight cores, it knows that, and it'll say one through eight. And I can select one core, two core. I've got it running six, six cores right now, so it's not completely maxing out the capability of my PC. Of course, I'll get less XMR for that. XMR, by the way, is Monero. Um, but I also won't be taxing my computer to its full uh, limits. So if you have any advice on this, I, the, you know, some computer guy that knows this thing or anybody that's been using it, I'd love to hear from you. Again, if you're going to sign up with it, um, you can just click the banner. It's really easy to see on my site. Give it a shot and let me know you've done it because I want to... I want to verify these guys aren't, you know, shafted people before I say, hey, let's let's run with this in full. Um, and I don't think they are because if you are, it's going to get out really, really fast um, in in this world. So check it out. And if you've been thinking about mining, you know, give it a shot. This is the way I look at it. If you pick a currency that you think is going to have some value to it in the future, and even if you only get a little bit of it, if you get it for nothing but the spare computing power that you have. At some point, you can flip it over to Bitrix, convert it to Bitcoin, and then buy anything you want and flip it to any wallet you want. It's a good way to get a hold of some currency without any kind of a cash outlay and therefore with no real uh, way to track where it came from, how it went. You didn't buy it with a credit card. You got what I'm saying? Just just what I'm thinking. And I think Monero is a, a decent crypto to be looking at right now in the first place. I think there's about eight um, cryptos that are available. Maybe it's more. Uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 cryptos that you can mine, including Ethereum, Bitcoin, Ethereum Classic. The the difficulty rate on those are all high enough that I would probably do something else. Uh, again, Smart Mining has pointed me most of the time to Monero, which is ticker symbol XMR. Um, one of the tickers on this is DSH for Dashcoin. I want to point out to you that's not Dash. That's not D-A-S-H. That's Dashcoin. It is only worth about $0.08 cents a coin. So it has a pretty easy hash rate, and it, you can get get it kind of quick, but it ain't worth much, and it's not Dash. And I just wanted to point that out. There's nothing misleading about that, uh, but they do not have mining for DASH as one of the options. So you can check it out again. It's called MinerGate, and uh, again, I'm not saying go do this. I'm saying if you want to fool around with it, please do so through my banner and let me know you are, and let's figure it out together if it's worth even doing. All right, with that, let's talk about something other than cryptocurrency today. Let's talk about bees, specifically whole bees, which are bees that live in holes, uh, like mason bees and leafcutter bees, and why we'd want to have those and how we can have a much better biodiverse ecosystem for 45 minutes to an hour's worth of work a day. And I'll tell you up front, if you want to get some bees from our guest at crownbees.com, uh, if you want mason bees, they're spring bees, And you can order them now for 2008, but their leafcutter bees are still available for this summer. So you could have new bees on your property in the next month. And to learn all about how we can do that, I want to introduce our special guest right now. His name is Charles Moore. He is with crownbees.com. And with that, hey, Charles, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, um, I've got you on today to talk about bees. Um, let's start off with the big picture about bees. Um, I hear, you know, we hear a lot of things with, you know, collie collapse and stuff like that. Bees aren't doing that well. Can you kind of talk about that? Yeah, so basically the whole emphasis of the bees is just the bee that the public really only ever hears about is the honeybee. And 
that's actually the wrong bee we should be really caring about. Um, and the only reason why we really care about it is because it's used on such an industrial level for our pollination practices. But as we're learning more and more through research, the honeybee is not a great pollinator, and it's also not native to the U.S. So we're trying to help educate the public on knowing the native bees and knowing the impact of native bees and how our native bee species, especially the ones that we can build populations of and build a control population of, significantly impact to pollinate, to grow food, and help restore ecological balance in our own backyards. Yeah, I mean, what's always struck me is there's so – and I, I, I'm a beekeeper, right? I keep the good old-fashioned honeybee because I like honey and I like to make mead, so I don't have anything against that bee, but – the obsession with it and like, well, if we didn't have this bee, we'd have no food, was, it was kind of crazy to me because I know full well that it was in early colonial times that that bee was even brought here. And somehow Native Americans and what have you had things like squash and beans that got pollinated. So there, there's definitely you know bees other than, than the honeybee that lived here long before the honeybee came. And you said there's a lot of other bees in the world. Um, how many? Can you give us kind of a rundown of what they are and their importance? Yeah, no, absolutely. And just to reiterate, too, it's not that I'm saying that the honeybee is not important. Uh, honeybee is awesome if you're making honey. Just we need to stop that practice of unethical pollination programs of just shipping these honeybees all across the country and where they're touching and picking up different diseases and pathogens in those environments and moving them to new environments, which is spreading new diseases to areas that have never been affected by these before. Um, so in the U.S. alone, there's over 4,000 native species of bees. Um, over 1,000 of those species nest in holes. Uh, the majority of the rest are ground-nesting bees. And in the world, there's over 20,000 species. And of the ones that actually produce honey, we're only looking at anywhere it's – I mean it's not even conclusive yet, but it's only between like 7 to 10 species of bees that actually make honey. Wow. Yeah, so I mean, we're we're kind of ignoring the other twenty thousand plus species as important, and um, unfortunately, we have to make a, a well. It's fortunate, but unfortunately, like, we need to educate the public that we need to know what's in our own backyard. I mean, look at Phoenix alone. Phoenix has over one hundred and thirty-six species just in the city of Phoenix. So, so that's where we need to really make people aware of that. With these native bees, what we can do to help restore their populations to ensure the health, to create that balance that we need for, you know, if we're growing food in our backyards, you definitely want those bees there. But even if you're uh, concerned about environmentalist uh, impact or the conservation impact of nature, of creating this eco-balance, extremely important to make sure that you have the native plants there and biodiversity. Yeah, so, I mean, are there, are there less of these bees now than there were, let's say, before the introduction of you know, the honeybee and, 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 and you and me, the white man to uh, North America? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, just deforest, deforestation, um, the, the standardization of what we know as the true American yard, you know, the perfectly groomed backyards. We're not just decimating populations of native species of bees. We're, we're destroying the population of all beneficial insects together. Um, and that's, that's the scary thing of what we've been doing in the last seven decades, really – I mean, it really all came about post-World War II when it was this whole American dream of perfectly groomed backyards, um, you know, getting rid of all the insects. Insects were bad. And the last seven decades, that's just been ingrained in our minds as 
this is what should be the standardized norm. And we've been doing it wrong. And I, you know, it's not to bash anyone who's been doing this and, you know, you love your green lawn, but realize that maintaining that green lawn and putting down those chemicals and such, it's not creating a healthy environment. It's creating a superficial, artificial environment, really. Yeah, so, so it, it re reduces the amount of places are to gather pollen or nectar. But it, well, I think the other thing we've done is, like, if we see a tree that's dead or dying, we kill it. And we remove it. Yeah. And removing it, we're removing habitat. Yeah, because, I mean, this breaks down to basically the bees you're talking about. You either have social or solitary, right? Yes. Yes. And vast majority are, uh, the vast majority of the species are solitary species. Um, and even the social species, such as bumblebees, they're very particular as to where they're going to nest. You know, and if, they, if you have chemicals on, your, on the ground... Well, if they nest there, they're going to die. And most of the time that they'll just be – if they smell that, that pesticide or that herbicide, they're just going to leave. Um, that's what happens, what we've noticed with the solitary bees that we have populations of that we help to distribute and we raise in every state in the country is when there's any pesticide spraying regimen, you just, you just push the bees away. They don't, they're not even going to stay. They, it's, it's as if the bees know that this is just not a good – place to, to want to make home it makes sense i mean like people think that you use smoke on honeybees because it calms them down no it makes them go away it makes yeah, them go exactly. back. And, and the reason is if i blew smoke in your face you'd back off too right so um yeah so it seems like when it comes to what people can do that's easy the the whole nesting bees are the key so why is that all right so one is since we've destroyed the majority of our habitat in our own backyards and we really do have to be conscious and responsible for what we're doing while we're living with nature. We have to create a balance. We're, we're, we, we live in an unsustainable society right now where if we keep destroying nature as we are, we're, we're doomed literally in the future. So the whole nesting bee, what you, we're doing is to helping to people to understand, one, how to set up a nesting house. And what you're doing is basically you're giving them the habitat that they would look for in nature that doesn't necessarily exist in your yard any longer. Because you've removed all the dead branches and you moved all the dead leaves and the, and, the dead, um, and the dead trees. So you're giving them an opportunity to have a house and you're still maintaining the aesthetics of how you want your, your landscaping to be. Um, and then it's simple from there. Making sure that you have the proper nesting that goes inside of the house. So the exterior house is really just for um, adverse weather mitigation. And the nesting materials are for what these bees are looking for, the perfect diameter holes to actually nest in to produce their cells for the next season. So as a spring bee comes along, that bee is coming out, and all of a sudden you notice that that spring bee, there might not even be a flower on the ground, but guess what? If you look up in the air in your trees, you're going to see these tiny little flowering buds. Those bees are going up in there and pollinating your trees like crazy, and that's, that's what, how important it is, and that, that's how much of a balance it is of nature. So as those bees are starting to pollinate your trees and they're helping, helping those seeds now, germinate seeds to go out, after those spring bees are done and now you have your apple trees and your pears and all the, the early bloom season trees, these bees did their job. They pollinated and at the same time, as they rewarded you through the pollination, you're rewarding them by having this safe house. They get to nest in the safe material, and at the end of the season when they die, the cocoons that they leave behind this year become your seasoned bees for next year. 
And every year you do this, they leave pheromones behind. So every single year, those bees particularly become more and more acclimated to that micro-environment because they only travel about 300 feet for food. Hmm. And since they have such a small travel of for food, you're really making them ideal over time that works perfectly within your backyard setting. So like somebody with me that, you know, I don't have a huge property, but I have a three-acre property. Uh, it yep. would probably be beneficial for me then to, because my honeybees will work two miles. So I have them in one corner where they don't bother people and, you know, they work the whole property. But, but if I wanted to maximize what I can get out of whole bees, it would be a good idea to maybe have several located throughout the property because they have a relatively small sphere of, of influence. That's exactly, what you just said is exactly it. And that's, that's the key to all, also these micro, these micro organic farmers. Um, as an example, just say your three-acre property was adjacent to a chemical farmer, someone who's spraying pesticides. You, oh, can literally, yeah. you can literally set up your house to be at that radius space of difference where those bees are not going to go into your neighbor's property. So you're keeping the health of the bees contained within your own property. And yes, you on three acres, you would set up several homes to optimize and maximize your pollination impact for what you're trying to grow. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about more of them. Like we, we already know they're not honeybees. They're, they're actually really easy to raise. In your notes, you say maybe 45 minutes to an hour of work a year. Yeah. Um, I, I'd like to hear about that because I think that's important. What I was saying there in the intro section before I had you on is that there's a lot of people out there like me. And what I mean by that is you, you want to do more stuff, but – you're already doing a lot of stuff, and you work hard, and you got all these things that have to be done. Whether you're, you know, kind of a, a full-time homesteader like I am, or whether you you work a regular job and then you get home, and you only have so many hours a day. And like, if you said, well, it's only two hours a month. Well, crap, that's that's another thing that I got to do every month, right? But if this is something we can do in a couple hours a year or less, that seems like it's very, very time effective. Oh yeah, no. So our goal. Our goal for doing what we're doing is, one, is a matter of high level of convenience to the end user, and two, is to ensure the highest level of success. Because especially where we are in the cusp of society right now, with this transition of happening, where people are becoming more aware of wanting to understand health and organics um, over chemical use, and trying to be proactive in that, our goal is to make sure that they succeed with that. So what we do is we, we've... We work directly with the top researchers in the country, making sure that what we put out works and then optimizing, optimizing it for convenience. So the quick, simple step through is you get a house. You hang the house. You make sure you put your nesting materials in there, and you want to hang your house facing sunrise. You want the house to be about eye level, so for your own personal observation and also for, for predator mitigation. After you do that, you put the cocoons out, and that's it. You just sit back, let them do their job, and then in the fall, you open up the holes that have been filled up, and you collect the cocoons, you store the cocoons over winter, and then in the spring, you repeat. It's, it's that easy. So take that, that 45 minutes includes your setup time and includes the time it takes to, to actually harvest the cocoons. And I, I, I guess that we would store those cocoons in a refrigerator kind of put them in a dormancy state you want to you want to create as close as you can to an artificial winter okay uh, and the reason why i'm saying an artificial winter is 
just say, for instance, um, if you keep them out in your shed, okay, so mimics exact, na- exact winter, okay? Well, you might wind up getting a really, really warm, a few warm days, say uh-huh. in, in two early spring, late winter. And you might start getting bees emerging when there's not even any pollen outside. Gotcha. So, the, so what you want to make sure is that these bees are properly acclimated to that environment, but you also want to release them when you start having bloom, especially if you're growing food. You want to have, you want to manage when the, when the bees start coming out to start pollinating. So yeah, you would store them in the refrigerator. Um, and the other reason for that too is for, for, um, any pest, uh, control. And that's the reason why you want to harvest the cocoons. That is the utmost important, most important thing to do if you're raising native bees. You have to harvest the cocoons. If we're providing artificial nesting, artificial habitat, you have to artificially maintain and control the population of them. Because if you don't, if there's any pests that get in there, pollen mites, chalk brood, um, even ant colonies, they're going to just eat through every cocoon that exists over winter if you don't harvest them in the holes. Because it's very unlike in nature where you're going to have, say, 100 holes of the perfect diameter, of the perfect length, side by side with each other, in, in, within millimeters of each other of proximity. So because we have this set up like this, we, it's, we, we, ha- we tell everyone, harvesting the cocoons is the most important thing to ensure the success of the emergence for the following season. Well, that makes sense because I would imagine in nature that bee would distribute its cocoons over a much broader area, so it's creating a a target-rich environment for a predator where they would be kind of having to get to the the holes one-off. So that makes sense. It makes me want to back up, though, a second, because when you were talking about this earlier, it made me think with, you know, habitat loss and all, and they're looking for a specific hole of a specific size. That makes me think there would be some symbiotic relationships between certain maybe birds or things like that or other insects that maybe core the hole the first year and the bee uses them the second. It's kind of that how that works in nature, and it's part of the loss of diversity, not just the loss of the habitat, but whatever symbiotic creature makes the hole. Yeah, it's – yes, exactly. I mean it could – could, it's that. It's also – a windstorm that comes in and just snaps the tops of uh, snaps the tops of some old reeds uh, on a lake bed. All of a sudden, it just opened up a whole new slew of habitat. Um, so that symbiotic relationship is again comes down to biodiversity. Um, what I tell everyone whenever I speak is, if you don't see a lot of native birds flying around your property, you have something out of balance on the mm-hmm. lower end because native birds are tr- the true apex predators of our backyard environments. So if you don't have those native birds flying around, start looking down. Start looking into your soils. You know, that's really where it all begins. You know, the soil help. If you have if you have a chemically induced soil and it's putting out flowers, well, anything that eats that nectar and that and and the pollen are going to die from that. So it's if you start seeing a lot of native birds, you're doing a great job. You have a really nice balanced system. And then you can start adding to it to making, making that system even better, providing birdhouses, providing bat houses, putting up the native bee houses. And again, it's all you're doing is helping to stimulate habitat to increase the population of the native species. So there, there's two things that I really like about things like mason bees and leafcutter bees and stuff. First of all, they're awesome pollinators, and second of all, they're gentle. You don't hear people, I got stung by a mason bee. I, no. I think they actually can. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure of that, but I've never, I mean, I've had them, you know, they're natively around a lot in the garden I had down in uh, Arlington. They would just be there early in the year. Um, 
But can you talk about what makes them gentle and what makes them such great pollinators? Yeah, okay. So we'll talk about the gentleness first, all right? Well, one is most people get confused when they see a mason bee particularly, especially like a blue orchard bee. And they get confused thinking that it's a fly because it's same. It's about the same size as a house fly. Um, typically darker in color, um, like a dark blue or a black. And if you really don't know the difference between what a fly and a bee looks like anatomically, you're going to think it's a fly. Um, so that's one. The other reason is because it's a solitary species. It's not hive mentality. It has no desire to sting you because it's not there to protect anything. All its main function is to do is to collect as much pollen and nectar as possible to lay as many cells as possible and breed. So it's providing the highest output of, of, um, of pr- you know, just producing its new offspring for the following season. So you can literally go inside of a, uh, as a perfect example, when my hydrangeas from the summer bees, the leafcutter bees, when my hydrangeas go into full bloom, I have thousands of bees flying around my hydrangea. And I have a chair sitting right underneath it. And I just sit in there and I just look up and I'm just surrounded by thousands of bees and just observing it and just, you know, just enjoying it. It's almost like meditative, to be honest. <laughs> and at the same time, though, they're not going to bother you. You could pick them up. The only time that they will sting you, and as any animal would anyway, is if you try to kill it. You know, if you yeah. pick it up in your hand and you try to crush it in your hand, you're going to get a little jolt. And what it kind of feels like is. If you ever tested a nine volt battery on your tongue, uh, that little jolt, yeah, that's kind of what the sting would feel like in your hand. It's not going to sting you anywhere else again because it's only going to sting in absolute defensive mode if you try to crush it. Yeah, because like a, a bee, when a honeybee stings you, it knows full well it's going to die, right? And it's dying. I, yes. it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's falling on its sword for the good of the collective, and that's yeah. why you'll notice like honeybees are actually very gentle creatures. When they're out and about, farting around, flying around flowers. I mean, you can reach yeah. in if you have, if you grab them or whatever. Like you said, you're going to get stung. But I mean, you can reach in and touch them. I've had them on Mount Work sweat. I'm sweating, and I've had bees land on me and drink the sweat off my arm. Right? Yes. But mm-hmm. go jack with their house. Oh yeah, right? no, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and like as a beekeeper, you have to almost get into this meditative state that I'm still working on learning because I'm not afraid of a bee. I'm afraid of 30,000 of them, though, I'll be honest. So, like, my bee mentor, he's like, he goes to this zen state where, like, the one time we had a whole bunch of them laying on the on the hive, like, outside because it was hot. They were forming, like, a mini swarm look. And he's wearing his suit, but he's not even wearing gloves, and he just reaches in, and he just picks them up and sets them on the top of the hive to make sure, like, the queen's not inside the clump. And I'm like, that's some bullshit right there. I'm not doing that. Um <laughs> He but, became a bee, that's why. He yeah, he a, can do that, right? Like, Michael Jordan does that, too, you know, like the, the bee whisperer guy. But, like, for me, when they're out and about, they're never a problem. And with the solitary bees, they're always out and about. That's their thing. And I guess when you set up a house, it looks like there's a colony, but that's because, we, like you said, we created a fake environment. They're not used to working that way. They usually have one hole here and one hole there and, one, you know, that type of thing. So... Yeah. They're going to die for no good reason if they sting you. Exactly, exactly. And with, but with these guys, with the sting, actually, they'll sting you, but they won't die. These oh, okay. Solitary ones. They, oh, because good it's for not, them. <laughs> yeah, they're not getting. A, they're not hitting you with any anaphylactic uh, toxin. Okay. All it is is a pointy butt, and okay. they're just hitting you with a pointy butt. So it's not even like a stinger that gets removed and then toxins ah. still keep pumping in you. It's yeah. a point. It's just a pointy butt. 
to kind of just warn you, say, come on, get off me, let me, let me go. Leave me alone. You know? I don't want to be bothered, man. Okay, cool. Yes, they, they, won't even, they won't die from that. And to answer your other question as to why they're super pollinators, it really comes down to three key factors. It's their, it's one is their anatomy, and uh, which, which I'll discuss now is if you look at the difference between a honeybee and a solitary bee, a solitary bee is extremely hairy, okay? Um, I mean, people have seen bumblebees up close. Even though bun- bumblebees are, are colony bees, um, the, again, the bumblebees are super pollinators as well. They're very hairy. And what that does is every single flower that they land on, the pollen just gets stuck to them uh, all over their body. So every time that they land on a new flower, some pollen falls off, some pollen comes on, and just keeps going in that cycle. And with the solitary bees... They're completely indiscriminate when it comes to collecting pollen because they're not being told where to go. Okay, it's like uh, you know, the, it's it's like a teenage you know kid driving around the first time in his car to just look for that fast food joint that they want to go to, and it's just like I'll go here, 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 bounce around. Whereas now you have the honeybee, which is more like more like a logistics truck driver. I have to go to point A to point B because I'm told to. So what that what that means is when a honeybee goes out for pollen, it's the dancing bee that says, go in this direction, and depending on how how high like it's flying up and down, it says go this far. So now a honeybee might just go to one tree because it's told just to go to that one tree, and all of a sudden it starts stripping the pollen. Okay? And as it starts stripping the pollen, it puts the pollen on its pollen sacs on its back legs, and it wet stacks it. So now every time it lands on a flower, a honeybee doesn't want to drop pollen. Sure. It needs to bring back as much as possible to the hive. So let alone that that honeybee isn't dropping any pollen, it might not even be visiting another plant on that trip, and then it comes back, where the solitary bee is just bouncing all over the place. So... That's the other reason why the solitary bees are better pollinators because they're, they're bouncing around, hopping on all different flowers where the honeybee is, says, go here, drop it off, pick it up, and come back and drop it off in the most efficient way. Well, um, that, ma- that makes sense because like, a thing I've noticed is there's certain trees on my property when everything's flowering that they're not really interested in. And I don't even think it's just what you said. I think that's part of it, but it's like the dancing bee is saying, hey, go over here to the autumn olive or the elderberry or what have you because they really like the pollen and nectar from that where they're like, you know, we'll pollinate your apricots and almonds if we if we run out of everything if else. We, run out. We, we don't really yeah. like that. We, we <laughs> exactly. prefer not to do that. It's, it's lower yield. It's like if you sit down, if I sit down and you put a big giant steak in front of me and, and some broccoli. I might eat some broccoli, but I'm going to eat the freaking steak. <laughs> exactly. Right? But if there's a little piece of steak and a little piece of broccoli and a little piece of cucumber, I'm going to eat it all because I only have so much I can get. Yeah. You, you just described my dinner last night, by the way. I had my <laughs> last I had my last venison roast oh, from, man. from the deer I harvested in, uh, in flintlock season. And yeah. that, that was my dinner. It was my last roast, and I had a little bit of asparagus on the side. And I only got to a couple of pieces of asparagus because I really enjoyed that roast. So <laughs> yeah, it's not that you don't like asparagus; it's you really like the meat and you're going to fill up on it. Exactly, exactly. So yes, yeah, so, and the other big—this is the biggest one too. Okay, I'm going to give you an example. Uh, let's just take an apple orchard. Okay, we got about a 14-day bloom season in the in the orchard. Okay, now let's just say the first six days of that of the the blooming season is cold and windy. 
Okay? Well, honeybees are going to just cool out in their, in their hive. Why? Because they have the food source there. That's what they do. They stock up on, on days like this, on the rainy days. You know, that's their rainy day winter collection. So they just sit back and they eat the food. Nothing is going out and pollinating. The solitary bees don't have that luxury. They don't have any food storage. They have to fly every single day regardless of what the weather conditions are. So because of that, we can help farmers and backyard gardeners and homesteaders, like my, I'm a homesteader also, to ensure the highest yield of pollination, to ensure the highest yield of food because these little bees are out there every single day regardless of what the weather is pollinating. No, that makes perfect sense. And I mean, it's also the case of just regional ad adaptivity, right? So these are these bees are, are, are native to North America. Um, very popular line of honeybees are the Italians, right? Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and, and I don't know if you've been to southern Italy, but it's not like where I live, unfortunately. Uh, I, I yeah. kind of like that climate here. But they live in, like, southern Italy. They don't live in a box in nature. Honeybees nope. live like, like they just build comb hanging off of trees, Right? Yes. They, they, they don't, because the, the, the climate where they're from, they don't need to be in a box. They don't need to be in a hollow log or whatever. They just, I was amazed the first time I saw these huge combs just hanging off a tree in a, in a picture. Um, so they are definitely going to stay in the box because it's cold and I don't want to go out. And like you said, I got a, I got a full larder of food here. So I, I, I got all year to, to work on next year's. And I'm only going to live six weeks. So I'm going to chill here and, uh, you know, eat yeah. some pollen or some honey or whatever. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And that's the difference of impact. That's why, that's why the ratio that we come up with as to why, you know, why we, they're 400 times better at pollinating than, you know, it's a 400 to 1 ratio is because of that. And, you know, also if you look at the hive, you're talking about almost 60% of the hive population is there just to maintain the hive itself. It's, so you don't even have the entire population actually even going out and collecting yeah. them. It's a motivation thing. Remember the old movie Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross? The guy said first prize is a Cadillac, second prize yep. is a set of steak knives, third prize is you're fired. Yes. And everybody works really hard then because you got to. And that's exactly. how these guys are. They either work or they die. They starve. Yes. Yes, exactly. So that's, that's basically the, the rundown as to why they're better pollinators and why they're, um, why they're gentle. So let's talk about how people can actually raise them. What do people actually need to do to get it done uh, in their own backyard? All right, so... Here, I'm going to give you the big don'ts first, okay? okay. Because there's there's too many people doing the don'ts uh, because um, ever since we really started building awareness of this, um, and I'm not bashing competitors, so to say, but hey guys, hey competitors, start doing things ethically because you're you're really messing with nature right now. Is um, don't do drilled blocks of wood unless you put inserts in there, meaning tubes that you can actually pull out to harvest the cocoons, okay? Okay. And don't use bamboo. I can't. We can't stress enough to people to not use bamboo. You know, one. I mean, one primary and very. It's just common sense. Is it's not native to the United States. You know, so now you're using a nesting substrate that you don't really know the impact of what it's going to do to the bees just for being not native. Um, then the reason now why not to use the drilled blocks of wood and bamboo is. For two main reasons. It's the pest mitigation. You are not able to open up the holes to collect the cocoons. 
So every year you're doing this, you're actually adversely impacting the population of the bees that you're so trying to build a population of on your property to where these houses turn into a house of death after a few years because now it's just riddled with pests. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I also saw something you said on, on your site about like kind of like the whole like apartment complex thing where you see like billions of them in one place. Like that's not a good thing either. Yeah, don't it's that's not it's, that's not nature. You you don't want to especially when you're building these big insect hotels to attract all these other types of species of insects. It's you know, you're throwing the zebras in with the lions. Hmm. And and you know, it's a matter of if you're going to build these things and you want habitat for you know, different wasps, or if you want habitat for um, just, you know, if you want an ant colony, whatever. Some people want ant colonies. Just build it away. Keep those species somewhat separated around your property because all it's going to do is just counter, just be counterproductive to each other. So, so what people can do is one is read up on it. Okay, we're a company, even though we're a for-profit company, we're a mission. Our mission is to ensure that we increase the population of these native species, help the help people become aware of what native species are in our own backyards, and to ensure that the population increases for increase of food production and also ecological health. You know, the more bees and the more pollinators that we have and that we can provide, it's helping to create little micro radius zones for them to go out and disperse into the wild. It's helping to increase the health of the flora. Of the native floor, particularly, you know, stop planting exotics. So one is just to research how easy it is to do and what you can do. Then simply look at where you have a spot in your backyard, nice sunny area, and just set up one of these houses and really enjoy a nice. And I'm going to call it a hobby because most people start out as a hobbyist and start out started out as a hobby. Start raising some of these native bees, and before you know it. We see that people start getting more in tune. It's almost like a first stepping stone towards sustainability. Once they start raising bees, well, guess what? They're not using chemicals anymore. And now they're taking more attention on focusing on planting native plants and focusing on growing food. And all of a sudden, we're helping people to go from that perfect American dream, you know, chemlon to being a micro homesteader. And the, grat the gratification of it is huge. I mean, You know, there's nothing like growing your own tomatoes, and when you see that first ripe tomato come off, you pull it off the plant and bite into it, and it's the best thing you've ever tasted. <laughs> so, so we, so that's really what we're what we're about. We're trying to help people just to take that step towards providing that habitat, doing it ethically, doing it responsibly, um, and you know, it's not about it's not going to break your bank. And what I can promise is that high level of gratification in the end that. You do feel good about doing your part and helping to increase the population of the bees, but you're also going to see significant changes in your own in backyard environment from the impact of the pollination from what they're doing. You know, it makes me think, I've got this aviary that I set up. It's aviary and aquaponics system, so it's 50 feet by 10 feet long. Uh, I've got shade cloth over it, all except for the, the east end where the sun comes up. Um And I have a whole bunch, like 12 beds of, of aquaponics tied in, uh, wicking beds and admin flow beds in there. And I get pretty poor pollination. It's, it's covered completely from ground to ceiling with three-quarter inch um, 
hardware or a quarter inch hardware cloth so that rats can't get because quail run around oh, the wow. floor, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The, the, the bees can get in there. They just, they're kind of slackers and it's extra work. So you see them in there once in a while, but they don't do a real good job. But I could actually set up a house inside there on the sunny side of it. And I mean, the mason bees and leafcutter bees easily go in and out and they're up high enough the quail can't get to them. And, and that would be an example of using them on a micro scale. Exactly, exactly. And as long as as long as what you're saying that that, that cloth is is somewhat vented, okay? No, it's 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 beautiful in there. It's you, Oh, perfect. It's, it's I mean, the greatest place on the property, especially this time of year. <laughs> that is awesome. That's exactly it then. As long as you have that as long as it's vented and you're not impeding on them to be able to exit or enter. Yeah. Uh, it's that's you're creating that ideal environment. I I did the same thing with my greenhouse. I have my greenhouse completely vented. And I did a. Um, I have somewhat of an aquaponic system where I'm raising. I do. I raise trout, and I pump the, the water from the trout pond up into my irrigation of the greenhouse, and then I all flows down into a drip pan, and then the drip pan feeds back into my spirulina pond, and then I feed the spirulina to the trout, and it's just an awesome system. And I'm, I walk in there, bees are flying all over the place. I have mantids in there, uh, just to, well, one mantid actually in there. That's my my. Uh, my security guard of, of pests for my greenhouse. So it's, it's just awesome. It, it really works out nicely like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, you're saying, you know, like when you have birds around, you're doing well. Like, so I've got uh, green tree frogs living in there now, and that's like, wow. that's just awesome. Actually, I had wow. one. I don't know how he got in because he's too big to fit through the holes. Mm-hmm. Um, so he must have got in when he was a baby. And so the other day I'm walking around, I saw a couple on other parts of the property. I'm like, you guys are going in there. So I've got, to, I'm trying to build a colony <laughs> of frog sentinels. But when you got amphibians, you got birds, you got bees, you got those things going on, you know you got a healthy ecosystem. Um, amphibians, what you just mentioned with amphibians? Yeah. Key, man, key. Because amphibians are so prone to any, any chemical or toxic changes because, you know, they absorb so much through their skin. And if something's a little off, the, 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 the entire population doesn't even have a chance to escape. They just die. So amphibians are such key, too, to just observe, to know that you have a sustainable system. Yeah, definitely. So what when people actually set things up, what should they expect through, like, you know, the time from you set it up until, you know, you're, you're putting them in the refrigerator for the winter? All right, so we made this super simple, man. Again, it all comes down to convenience because we know everyone's busy, you know. Even myself, I'm running the company and and – Try, and being a homesteader at the same time. So what people would do is they get the house, they set up the house based on the easy instructions. We even have video instructions on what to do. Set up the nest. Then we have little certificates inside that they redeem the certificates. And then we ship the cocoons in the springtime directly to the, per, you know, to the home so they could put the cocoons out. And then in the summertime, we actually ship the live bees, the summer bees, uh, to the people. Um, you know, to the consumers, and all they do is just introduce the, put it out in the house, and then you just sit back, let them do what they need to for the season. You're not touching anything, and then in the fall, you harvest the cocoons of the of the spring bees, and then over winter, around December, January, you harvest the cocoons of the summer bees. Very cool. So, um, can we talk a little bit about the bees that people actually can get from you? Yeah. Um, I, I noticed that the mason bees right now are on. You could pre-order them for 2018 because it's summer and they're a spring bee. But yep. people can still get the uh, the leafcutter bees from you for this season, right? Yeah, so the leafcutter bees, uh, we'll start with those because it's the season now. 
So the leafcutter bees will start emerging once the temperature typically gets to an average of 77 degrees and up. And the leafcutter season, uh, which we just call our summer bees, just for the ease of it, uh, we deal with one specific species of leafcutter bee that's uh, native to the U.S. Um, I'm, uh, actually, I'm sorry. They were introduced to the U.S. a long time ago, but they've become very naturalized, and they're, they're a super pollinator, and they're not going anywhere. Um, because they've become so naturalized, they, they technically are relatively uh, native now. So with that species of bee, um, they have a longer season than – they live longer and have a longer season than the um, mason bee. In some states, as an example, in Louisiana and like Florida, you'll actually get two different emergences of the summer bees happening within the same year because of the humidity and the temperature. So the leaf cutters will go from typically around June well through until about uh, September, depending on where you are in the country. And their cocoons will be ready to harvest in, uh, like I said, in about December, January timeframe. Again, it depends on what state you're in. Um, you know, because some the bees actually the leafcutter bees by me haven't even emerged yet. And I'm in Pennsylvania, so uh, which they all should be emerging literally in the next week or so because the temperatures are starting to get there. The mason bees have a shorter lifespan, but they come out with when the temperatures consistently get to about 55 degrees temperature, and they'll live about six to eight weeks. Um, and if the temperatures get too warm too quick. They'll actually over-metabolize, and then they'll no longer be um, – uh, then their season would be cut much shorter. So once the temperature gets about 85 degrees, uh, the, the mason bees start having a hard time uh, to survive. Gotcha. Um, so if, if you wanted to do this this year, there's, there's still plenty of time just about any part of the country then to get uh, leaf-cutting bees and, and get them set up? Oh, yeah, any, anywhere. Any part of the country right now, yeah. getting the leaf-cutter bees – it, it's every almost every single state is ready for it, and the ones that aren't ready for it are going to be ready for it in the next couple of weeks. Okay. And again, there's two different seasons for the leaf cutters. There's early summer and late summer. So, um, like I said, these things will go straight through uh, through until September. That's badass. Um, can you talk a little bit about the housing? You mentioned you have to be able to open it up, you have to be able to clean them out, that type of thing. Yeah. So that's the nesting materials. So there's two different types of nesting materials. Well, technically three that we have. We have individual tubes, which are cardboard tubes, um, and then we have natural reeds, and we also have um, – um, they're called nesting trays. They're, they're nesting blocks, basically, of, of different uh, sections of wood with the different diameter holes in them. Now, the spring bees prefer an 8-millimeter hole. So in the springtime, you want to put out as, as many 8-millimeter holes as possible, but that's also only for the specific species that we're supplying. What we see is in the Northeast, as an example, we have a bee called the pumilla, which is a mason bee, but it, it prefers a hole that's only 4 millimeters, and it's a tiny, tiny little bee. So we also have different nesting substrates, uh, different nesting materials that have different diversity of holes ranging from 4 millimeter up to the 8 millimeter. In the summertime, the leafcutter bees actually prefer the six millimeter holes. So now you have the, either the reeds or the tubes that the, the summer bees, the leafcutter bees, will nest inside of. Um, and then the wood blocks are just a whole bunch of uh, the holes in it, but each each laminate is its own tray. So to harvest that, all you do is peel the laminates away, and you have the whole row of cocoons right there, and you just pop them right up. 
So the tray is the easiest way to harvest the, the cocoons, and it's a product that you can use year in, year out, because all you do is after you harvest all the cocoons, you close it up, you store it over winter, and you put it back out in spring and summer. Gotcha. The tubes, once they fill up, eh, you're ripping these things apart. They're easy to break apart. The tubes you kind of unravel, where the reeds you just split down the middle, and you just pop them open. Um, but by providing the diversity of nesting, by putting some tubes in there, by putting some reeds in there, and putting um, putting one of the wood trays in there, it's you're creating a diversity of nesting as well. It's like when it's like when we go look for houses. You know, we could go into a cookie cutter community where every single house is the same. Well, if you don't like what that house looks like on the inside and outside, you're not going to buy that house. So, but if you now go into that same community where they maybe have three or four different style houses, you're more likely to choose one of those houses. And that's how these solitary bees work. So creating and having that diversity of the holes of the nesting will increase your chance of them staying around and nesting because, you know, I might like the reed better than the tray or I might like the tray better than the tube and such. So you're providing just a, just a higher success chance. We also, we also uh, created our own pheromone that mimics the, the – it's an attractant that mimics the pheromone from the spring bees, the entire genus of Osmia, and, also, and the species of the leafcutter bees. And we're seeing huge success with this where you just spray this little spritz on the outside of the nesting, and these bees just swarm to this thing and start filling those holes immediately. So – um, which is awesome because now when you put the cocoons out, just to add a higher success rate that the bees are going to just chill out and stay, that they see this as a good house, you're just mimicking the pheromones that they would typically leave behind the season before. So when the new bees come out, they smell something. And that's the importance of the pheromones. Since these bees are dying and only leaving cocoons behind, what is to tell those new cocoons that this is a good ample house to stay in? And it's the pheromones. So every year... That's the reason why every year you become more and more successful with increasing the population. It almost becomes a generation of history books of for the bees. So when they smell these pheromones, it's like, wow, wow, these pheromones go five years back. You know, this is a really good place to stay. There's good source of good natural source of re, uh, resources here. Cool. Do you have like um, like something that's like a starter kit? Like you buy this one thing and it's all here's your bees, here's your house, here's your nesting material or do you do people have to kind of modularly put that together on your site we all right so we we made it for everyone and everything because we had to realize that you know we're always going to have the diyers out there and we also have to come at it from a different economic perspective as well as you know how much of an investment do you really want to start so we have very very entry level houses that start at $25 for um, it's the little summer bee house it comes with the the house some tubes inside, and it's a certificate to get bees sent to you. And then we have the one where you don't need anything else. It's called our Bee Works Chalet. Okay. It's the soup to nuts, everything. It comes with bolt bees. It comes with tubes and reeds, and it comes with also uh, the different nesting blocks for the summer and the spring. And basically, when you get that, when you get that one, you don't need anything else. So. Um, and then we have the, the DIY components. We sell the nesting individually. We sell the houses individually. We sell the pheromones individually. Because, again, we know that there's people out there that may not want to have everything in one, but also just to provide that high level of convenience and leave out all the guesswork, 
here it is. You know, so if you want if you want that all-in-one starter kit, just go to the website and of Crown Bees and just grab one of those starter kits. You know, you'll see the, an actual link that says starter kits. Yeah, I see that. <laughs> yeah. I'll add a link to the show notes instead of just to your site, kind of down to that starter kit page because I think there's a lot of people that like that's what they would like to do. They would just like to be able to order it, set it up, put out the cocoons, and watch it start happening. And you know, I think it's cool that we got you on early enough in the year that there's still plenty of time for the leaf cutters. I've got native masons around here. Um, not sure where they're nesting or whatever, but I've not seen any of the leaf cutters, so I think that'd be a cool thing to bring in. Um, so can we also talk about that? Like you mentioned, like you can get like the, the 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 housing, and you can order bees separately or get a certificate for bees later. Um, but also, I mean, if these things are native, we can probably set up housing, and if like it's like field of dreams, right? Like if you build it, they will come. Is yes. there ways to do that? Yeah, so that's actually called our hotel series. So we built what's called the hotel series because most importantly, we don't want to build into the method that methodology of just you know where people are raising mason bees and they're like, oh, I'm good on mason bees, I don't need leaf cutter bees. No, you know that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to increase the biodiversity. So we created this hotel series to help attract the the native species in your backyard. And you know how awesome would it be that you have this house set up and maybe you have 14 different species nesting in this one house because each of the species is taking different one of the different holes of the nesting materials that are there. And that's the key is to just help figure out what is here in our own backyards. You know, when you figure out what's in your yard and all of a sudden you start seeing the population of all these different bees, guess what? These bees are so niche specific that that one species of bees may only be focusing on these types of plants. Where this species of bees, because it's emerging a little bit later on, a couple of weeks even, a little bit later on, is focusing on these plants. So that's where that biodiversity is key for the success of you know sustainable environment, is making sure that we're not just being a monoculture of even raising native bees. It's a matter of creating the diversity of the different species that should be in, that should be in our own backyards. So, so yeah. the hotel, yeah. So that hotel series, we. We only have three different species of bees that we actually have a control population of that we farm in all the states of the country and even Canada that we distribute. We have the East Coast mason bee, the West Coast mason bee, and then the leafcutter bee. That's only three of the thousand plus hmm. whole nesting species in the country. So, and we're asking for the help of the public. Help us find these other bees. Help us identify these other bees. And let's now, once we start getting a higher population of these other types of bees, what bees work with what food? Yeah. So we can significantly increase food production organically through through optimized pollination. Well, that's kind of what I was thinking because they, a lot of these bees are smaller than honeybees, so they can get into flowers that honeybees, you know, can maybe can get some stuff from, but they're not real hip on them because they're so little. My honeybees actually seem to like autumn olive, but those are tiny flowers, and I would think some small native bee may do a lot better job in pollinating autumn olive and gumi and things like that, or other very small flowered plants than a, a, you know a relatively large insect like a honeybee compared to that particular flower or blossom. Exactly. Yeah, and that's. I mean, just a perfect example is last week as I'm going through my yard. A tiny, tiny bee landed on me. I don't even know what this bee was. It was gray, and it was literally about the size of the tip of a pen. And it landed on my arm, and I only knew it was a bee just because of the anatomy of it, just looking at it. And before I was able to grab my phone and take a picture of it, because I was just more in awe that 
wow, look at how small this bee is. And that's that's one of the native bees that's living in my backyard. So it was just wild to just see and, and just to even think about what plants are, what flowers is this bee working with? You know, are they working with those tiny little violets in my, uh, uh, you know, along the, the meadows? You know, what bee does this, what plants attract this tiny little bee? And does this bee nest in a hole or does it nest in the ground? So, and that was just, it was just a wild observation just seeing that, you know, wow, I never even knew a bee could be this small. And I'm, I'm one of the bee experts out there. So, <laughs> yeah. That's very cool, man. Um, I'm actually ordering uh, some stuff on your site right now. <laughs> so I'll, I'll definitely throw out an endorsement for it. I'm, I'm checking out this uh, V-Works Chalet uh, for $164 bucks with everything. I think that's, that's awesome. Uh, and, and I just think the idea of getting all of this biodiversity going, and, and I guess what you uh, – I guess what you uh, – when you're doing this even with – so now I'm kind of taking it a different way. You're yeah. doing this even with bees that you're buying, but you're putting out the habitat – And I always kind of thought, like, well, if I set up a, a, a bee block and I buy some mason bees and I hang them near that, they're going to use that, which, of course, they are. But I never really thought about the fact that just by changing the nesting material and giving them some different options, other native bees will come nest in that same block. Exactly. The, yeah, because you're just all you're doing is providing diversity, and you're hoping you're hoping that what you're putting out there will attract these these native bees i have a, i have a tiny little native bee as we're speaking right now flying around me i've never even seen the species before it's this little black bee uh, <laughs> as we're speaking i'm i'm sitting out on my on my porch um, while while i'm doing this it's um that's exactly it it's 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 so much guesswork too i mean we're the only ones in the country that it's putting out this level of research at the same time as putting out um putting out a consumer product to help us figure out what this is so I mean, you know, we're working with phenomenal researchers as well, helping us figure this out. But again, there's so many questions that we have as, as what's there. So, you know, we're, we're learning too. There's some bees that use resin as their nesting substrate. So a leaf cutter uses leaves, a mason bee uses mud. And now we're finding out that there's some native bees that are using resin that are native in the U.S. Hmm. Uh, and some use sand as their nesting substrate. So again, it's not even just the nesting. It's also those resources of the substrate that is it there on your property. So this is what's fun about this because as this continues to grow and we start impacting more people and more people are getting way more engaged. I mean the engagement level has been huge and the response rate has been huge for what we've been doing. Um, it, turns it, it turns it into a big like almost a social science um, uh, project as well. You know, what do we have? What do we have? And yeah, um, yeah what's and then, here? Yeah, what's here? And it's just it. I have to say this. Uh, you know, being a part of this business is, has been one of the most gratifying um, things that I've done in my life, uh, realistically, because it, it has such high impact to help society. Very, very cool, man. So here's a question I have for you. I remember a long time ago I was looking at setting some stuff up, and I was watching these guys on YouTube, and they were they were harvesting the cocoons. And it, they were throwing away certain ones that they saw as being like some kind of parasitic wasp or something like that. Is that something yeah. you have to look out for as well? Uh, you, yes and no. Um, so in the leaf cutters, as an example, one of the reasons why we ship the ship the bees live is one, the, the bees are okay to. They're not like mason bees where when the mason bee emerges, it needs food immediately. Okay. A leaf cutter bee can go go about three days without food. Okay. Um, The reason why we ship them live, though, is because a lot of their cocoons 
get um, infested uh, with this pet type of parasitic wasp. So when we go through the incubation period, typically about you know day 10 or 11, as they're incubating, we'll, we'll, the wasps start coming out. And why? Because the predator will come out, perch itself up on a tree, and wait and wait until the leaf cutters emerge, and then and then you know parasitize their uh, the cells. Okay. So we make sure that we're sending out stuff that's not parasitized. It's you can't tell the difference between a really a parasitized um, leaf cutter cocoon and a non-parasitized cocoon because of how small they are. Um, there, you know, the leaf cutter cocoons look really cool too. I mean, it could be uh, built up of, of leaf substrates or flower petal substrates. You know, sometimes when you open it up, it looks like a rainbow, uh, which is pretty wild. That this is nature doing this. Oh, wow. um, the mason bees, uh, the mason bee cocoons are a little bit easier to spot um, the parasite because the cocoon itself um, has somewhat of a translucent. Um, it's a it's a little bit more translucent. So if you when you're sorting through the cocoons and you put it on a light box as an, as an example, um, you'll, you, can, you can see the ones that have been parasitized and not. Okay. Now, where we are, though, with this is if these parasites are there, okay, and again, it comes down to biodiversity and balance of nature, okay, it comes down to really what you as the individual at home really want, okay? If you're using it for a high level of pollination, to ensure, you know, you want the most pollinators out there for your food, then you want to do a little bit of research on seeing the cocoons that have been parasitized. But if you're going at it from a naturalistic perspective, like me personally, I let them stay, you know. And the reason why is it's a balance. It's a balance of life. When the when the when the bee population drops a little bit, so will the parasite population. And when the bee population grows, so will the parasite population. But it's a matter of natural selection. You know, you're letting this – it's the survival of the fittest mentality. And that's how I feel that nature should be. It's all about it, – why should I manipulate what nature has evolved for millions of years on? No, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And it's, 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 it's a totally different situation, let's say, varroa mites inside honeycomb because that's an artificial environment where you're, you're giving these bees uh, a nesting site that's, that's – the only thing that makes it not natural is there's how many are in one spot. And then we're, we're handling that by the way we release them anyway the next year. So that, that makes sense. Um, man, you've said a ton. Um, can you talk about maybe what the key tips are here at the end of raising these native bees? All right. Key tips is, one, just stop using pesticides. Stop using chemicals. Um, if you're going to use chemicals, don't get the bees. You're going to waste your money. I'm just going to be honest. You know, I don't want you going out buying the bees and saying, oh, they didn't work. Well, did you spay, spray any pesticides? Yeah, well, there you go. So if you're going to spray anything, don't do the bees. If you're ready to truly take a stance towards sustainable solutions and living a true organic lifestyle, go ahead, look at the kits, pick the one out that works for you, get it set up, and for your first year, observe. For your second year, Tactically get involved to see what you can do to optimize the population of those bees in your environment because you'll know whether you were successful or not that, that first year based on how many cocoons um, how many cocoons you get and how many of those holes fill up. So if you start out with a high population of bees and you get really few holes filled up, something in your, something in your backyard environment is off. You might be missing the nesting substrate 
uh, like the mud, for instance, with mason bees, you might not have a good mud source, um, which we have mud. The mud comes with the kit of the chalet, as an example, to ensure that there's a mud source. Um, or you just might not have the type of flora or the native flora of the food. So year two, it'll give you that, that time to really optimize your system. And if you know that these insects are doing well in your yard, then you know that you're building a good environment for yourself and your family that's healthy. Very, very cool. And and you have like this great website. I, I, I'll admit that I didn't get to do the research on you pre-show um, like I usually do. I've been crazy busy this year. But what I did get to look at, the you know the learn section alone seems really cool. So you want to talk about your website overall a little bit? Yeah, again, I mean, I, and by the way, I, I actually, I, I find it better that you didn't research us first and then research us after just because, uh, um, you know, it's, it, I, I'm just helping to just set that foundation, you know, for you and everything. And, and then you find what you want there. Um, the website is really geared towards um, high level of education. You could go as deep as you want into the most, you know, to all the research that's actually out there from um, all the studies that have been done of the publications to just understanding on how to set up this house and that's it. Um, and again, it's, it's all a matter of just ensuring the highest level of success. One of the things that we do and we really strive towards everybody who wants to get involved with this, sign up to our newsletter. It's called our B-mail. Um, yeah, as cheesy as it sounds, it's called our B-mail. Um, and what we do with our B-mail is that every single month we, sh we send out tips and guides and, and tools that what you should be doing that particular month. So we're helping you to ensure the success of raising bees. So in case you forgot that you have to harvest the cocoons in the fall, right, we send out a newsletter in the fall saying, hey, it's harvest time. Gotcha. So just – to send out those reminders. And as long as you follow what we send in the email, you're going to be ultra successful. That's very, very cool, man. Uh, again, the uh, website is crownbees.com. Uh, this has been just a freaking awesome interview, man. Um, and I can tell you, you're, you're a little bit passionate about this, right? You can hear you get more and more amped up. And I think that's awesome when you have someone that's that's engaged in a business but's also passionate about the reason behind it. So man, I, I appreciate you being with us today, Charlie. Thanks, man. It really means a lot. I'm really doing this for my kids. I want to show my kids that one person can truly make a difference in society and especially for beneficial impact. So that's the whole reason I got into this. Yeah, and when you can start breeding millions of something to work on your behalf, that's 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 the way to go. I remember listening to Bill Mollison one time, when he's talking about like this guy. They figured out he had some like like 500 billion earthworms in his pasture, and he's <laughs> like, even if it's just a worm, if you can get 500 billion of anything to work for you, you're going to be doing pretty good. And yeah. uh, I think the power of the insect, when properly channeled, is 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 one of the greatest powers there is, man. So again, it man, really thanks for being with us today, Jack. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on the show. So cool guest, cool topic, something we really haven't talked a lot about, and certainly not in that level of depth before, something exciting that you can do. I mean, that's what I've always tried to do with this show, is bring you something you can do. And if you have a little space that you can set aside for, for a house for these guys, you can have these bees on your property or in your neighborhood, like right away. Like, this is something even I think a lot of you in apartments could end up doing. Some of you, not so much, but... Yeah, just about anybody anywhere could set these up. You could even kind of gorilla bee, right, in a park or something where people wouldn't even know what you're doing, and it takes 45 minutes to an hour a year to do it on some level. 
And uh, remember, you can get bees this year. The leaf cutter bees, those are the ones that are still available. You can pre-order your mason bees for spring 2018. Definitely something I think that's worth doing. Doesn't cost a lot of money. And what a cool thing to do with your kids, for those of you that have kids. Sounds like some cool homeschool projects or even some projects for the kids that are in government school, like science projects or something like that as well. And easy and inexpensive to do. You don't need a bee suit. You don't need anything, just some space and some dry holes for your bees to live in. That's why they call them whole bees. So, guys, real quick, I, I wanted to let you know that um, when I got off the air with uh, Charlie, uh, I, I really had not, when I said I didn't have time to you know, really do a lot of research on his site, I wasn't kidding. When I looked at the product offering, it's awesome. Their, their site's awesome. And so, of course, I hit him up for an MSB discount. While you're listening to this, if you're listening to the day recorder, it might not be set up yet, but he's going to do a 20% discount for MSB members. And I just wanted to put that out now. So if you're thinking about getting some, some of the stuff for these bees on your property, I really recommend you do. You know, give it a day or two and you'll see an announcement. It, may, it might even be today. As soon as he gets back to me with his blurb and the discount code, I'll get it added to the MSB. But I think that's a huge addition to the MSB. Charlie's a great guy. You can hear during the interview... The, the passion get deeper and deeper in his voice. Like he started out, you know, he's excited. He likes it, but like building like, like a crescendo with like excited about what he does. When you can marry entrepreneurship to true passion, you've got something. That's what we've got with these folks here at Crown Bees, and I'm grateful to be able to add them to the MS. Anyway, if you enjoyed today's show and you like the work that I do and you'd like to support me, one of the ways you can do that is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. When you go to tspaz.com, you can see all the reviews that I've done of products on Amazon, and you can click over and see the Amazon deals of the day. And whenever you do online shopping through tspaz.com, you help the survivalpodcast.com. Today I'm bringing back a product that I brought back now for the third time. I had it just about a month and a half ago, but I brought it back today because they dropped the price on it from $20 to $16. Bucks. That doesn't sound like a huge amount, but that's 20%. It is the Odium Bluetooth FM transmitter. And what this is is for folks like me. I have like a brand new um, Forerunner. We just traded the old Forerunner in and got a brand new one. It's like space, you know, ship ready when you get in. Everything is synced in Bluetooth, and and I have my old F three fifty. My old F-350 has a radio in it that I think if I ever took it out, I could probably beat somebody to death with it. It's this huge old honking radio. Doesn't work worth a damn. Still takes compact discs. I remember when I was old because I took cassettes. Like, today, like, do you even use your CDs anymore? I don't think most people do. You hook your phone up, you run Pandora, iTunes Radio, or Spotify, or whatever. You use your podcast apps, etc. Well, what if you have an old vehicle that doesn't have that capability? Well, you can put a brand new stereo in it, and, and to me, in my old truck, it's just not worth it. It just isn't worth, you know, a couple hundred bucks for a new stereo system. Um, so I got one of these. You plug it into your 12-volt uh, adapter. You set it to a station, and boom, you sync your phone with it, and you can make phone calls. You can play music. You can back up the previous tracks. You can do everything you do with the high-speed one for 16 bucks. And the best part, I think, anyway is that when you plug that into your 12-volt receptacle, the piece that does that has a USB power charger on it, so you don't give up the ability to charge your phone. So you have your phone charging and be playing at Bluetooth over your speakers, and yes, it works with your math, your map apps. So when you're sitting there using your GPS or your Google Maps app or whatever, your native app on your iPhone, and it says, ahead, keep right, onto you know Route 71 or whatever, you can actually hear it. 
because uh, it, and it'll interrupt if you're playing your, your podcast. It'll interrupt that so that you can hear what your navigation app is actually telling you, uh, which keeps you from fumbling around with it and getting a rack for 16 bucks. I think it's totally worth it. And again, it's made by a couple called Odium. I put I add made one addition to the review I did. I made a PS for it, and I said, my only word of caution is make sure you have some empty space on your FM dial based on where you live. Here in Dallas, I only have 107.7 and one other frequency in the 105 range that are actually empty with minimal bleed over. So I have put presets on these two stations on my radio so I can swap if one starts picking up too much static or bleed. I live in a huge market, and the dial is really crowded. In many areas, the dial is full of empty channels. Uh, so check. Like, if you're going to buy this thing... Get on FM and start going through from you know 84.1 or whatever your lowest frequency is and go all the way up to 107.9 and see if there's a handful at least on there where there's nothing. It's just <laughs> staticky. Um, if you have that, this will work fine for you. Uh, where I grew up in Pennsylvania, there was like three stations. I wish somebody made one of these that worked on AM. I think it's probably because it's greater transmission range, so it can interfere with other people's devices. That's probably why they don't do it. Um, but I, I, if they have one in AM, I mean, they have like 80% of the AM dial is empty. So if you know of a good one of these that does AM, I'd like to know about it. Otherwise, I recommend this for those of you with older vehicles that don't want to upgrade your stereo system but want to have all those newfangled features. Again, an Odium Bluetooth FM transmitter. You'll find it at the Survival Podcast and tspaz.com. And again, whenever you do your online shopping through tspaz, you do help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Uh, that brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day is a cool one. It's one that I heard many, many years ago and forgot all about. John Adams does a good job of bringing up stuff like that. It's called 39 by Queen. The premise of this song is that this guy goes to outer space. He travels at the speed of light for one light year away and back. But if you know anything about the theory of relativity, when he returns to Earth, about 100 years have passed. His kids are gone, his, his wife is gone, his grandkids are there. And he's lamenting the fact that everyone that he ever knew is gone. And, and the final word of that song is, is kind of ironic, the final line. He's talking to those that are gone, he says, Don't you hear my call through your many, many years away? Don't you hear me calling you? All your letters in the sand cannot heal me like your hand, for my life... Still ahead. Pity me. He still has his whole life ahead of him. He's seen amazing things, but he's saying to those that he left behind that are no longer there, pity me. I'd rather be with you. And, you know, th this song has, has a, a ton of meaning. I mean, the reason this song was even written, uh, and it's by Queen, but it's not by Fe uh, Freddie Mercury, it's by Brian May. Um, he was actually uh, a guy that studied astrophysics, and he considered going into that as a line of work and decided instead, I guess, to be a musician, especially once they became successful. Um, so there's this straight kind of sci-fi folk song thing going on here, just the reality uh, of if this type of thing were ever possible, what it would be like. But I, I think any good song is really a great poem to music. And all great poems actually could be interpreted many different ways. One of the things that we have to understand is that when we, we reach out and we do things that others are unwilling to do, like be a volunteer to travel at the speed of light into distant regions of the galaxy, or you step out as an entrepreneur, 
or you step out of the dichotomy, if you step out of the, the basic system that, that people are programmed to be part of, that you're going to leave others behind. Now, you're not going to leave them behind this way, where when you come back, they're, they're just gone. And they'll probably still be there, and you'll probably still have some communication with them, but it will change in any of these ways, because you become a different person. And family usually will hold, usually will hold in these situations. Especially if you don't make a big deal about beating your, your dad over the head with the fact that he's an idiot because he's still a Republican. Like, just don't go there. But the reality is, as you improve yourself, you'll find many people falling away from you. When you let go of certain religious constraints, if you have them, that may be a, a situation as well. Or And it doesn't matter what it is. So I'm not picking any one of these out. I'm pointing out in any situation where you evolve your belief systems, you evolve your actions, you evolve forward in time, you make a skipping. You, you skip certain parts of, the, of, of, of things that hold humans back. And you say, I'm going to go forward. You, you, you skip parts of your life that would be dedicated to statism and you realize that the morality of, of, of human interaction is more important than political affiliation, you're going to have pain points. Um, we had an officer, a law enforcement officer on the show, and I said, what's it like you know, having to do this job and knowing that many of the laws you have to enforce really should even be there? And you heard him gasp and, and, and just kind of have some pain and say, you know, it was so much easier when I just believed that everything I did was right, all the cops all the time were the good guys, and that if you were breaking the law, you were wrong no matter what the law was. But realizing now that some laws are unjust, it's very difficult. That's growth. That's growth. And growth means letting go of some people. Now, I'm not telling you to turn your back on your family, but I'm telling you that around you, you will have a sphere of people. You'll have a sphere of people, and those people will contribute to your lives good and bad, no matter who they are. They will be both good and bad influences on you. Even if they're the best people in the world, they will have some negative influences. And as you evolve forward... Some of them will make the journey with you. Some of them will make the journey alongside of you. And some of them you will need to leave behind. And in your life, if you're, if you're associating with people who are more negative impact on you than positive, your overall net result will be negative. You'll have to make the leap forward in time, in reality, in morality and in dedication to the things that are really important to you if you want to achieve anything. And you will leave them behind. And it will be hard, but it's not something where you should be pitied, unlike the gentleman in this song. Just another way to interpret the same piece of music. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
shifting from the blue. The volunteer. 